Kerstin, do you know what? What? Today's episode is number 40. Number 40? Yeah. My goodness. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, we started with this podcast uh, three years ago, and here we are. Now we are not as constant as we used to be, but we are still here. We're still around. <laughs> January was kind of holidays time for at least one of us. <laughs> Paper writing time for the other one. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting to be also writing papers and debugging the crazy code that is just driving me absolutely crazy. Anyway, today, finally, we are going to be here together and we are going to tell everyone some few things about astronomy that we are very excited about. Indeed. Good. Okay, let's start. I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the, the Scientists. scientists. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40. I still can't believe it's actually episode 40. That's insane. Yes, it is. It's such a big number. And, you know, in astronomy, it's basically equal to 100, and that's basically equal to 1,000. So really, we've done 1,000 episodes. <laughs> no, we'll not say that yet. <laughs> <laughs> At least we have half of them. Let's see if we can make that happen this year. So how busy have you been? How have you been doing lately? Oh, I've been burying myself underneath lots of papers, uh, writing my own paper as well, and trying to get stuff done for my PhD because I'm one year into my PhD now, which is absolutely insane. One year already. Wow. One year already. Yeah. I know. Three years to go. It's 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 scary, but I'm excited. But that also means that my PhD confirmation first year review is happening very soon. So I've been grinding away, writing and reading and figuring out what I'm doing, or at least I know what I'm doing for the next year or so, but at least putting that on paper and explaining that research process. That is also very important. And you still have three years left, which is great because usually you only have when you are done a year of your PhD, you only have two years or a bit yes. more, not, not much. Lucky for me, I have a four-year program instead of a three-year program. That's good. And you have been also observing a lot during Christmas at the AAT? Yes, we didn't get much. <laughs> a classic, were we in a La Nina? Yeah. yeah, classic La Nina weather. La Nina, also just, yes. Yes, also just the Australian summer. There were two nights of the, I think, eight that I had that were just completely stormed out. It was mm. very fun to watch on the all-sky camera where you can see the, the entire sky and it just lit up like fireworks every now and then when the lightning struck. But other than that, not much else happened. But not that fun to really see not data be taken after, you know, getting yes. a good fraction of time with a very large four meter telescope. I was having a kind of a similar feeling because the only thing I really wanted to do through the Christmas period and the holidays in January was to do a bit more of astrophotography with um, a couple of extra new things that I have. Unfortunately, as you said, we have right now La Nina happening in uh, worldwide, meaning that the east coast of Australia plenty of clouds, thunderstorms and rain, particularly in the evenings and nights. Sometimes in the morning, mm. it is not that bad. 
but you know, it is in, in the morning. So I had not been able to do much. I got some nice observation of the Pleiades and the Orion Nebula, but I still have to combine those data. By the way, Kirsten, this reminds me that I have to do a bit of auto-publicity right now. Oh. Because on the Saturday the 20th of February 2021 at 8.30 p.m., I will be participating as the main host for the next Southern Sky live stream of Sydney Observatory. Ah, oh, fantastic. Thank you. So we'll be pointing with the telescope of Sydney Observatory to several objects in the night sky in Sydney, and I will be talking about them. There is a little history behind that, and I will also explain a bit of astrophotography. I will also share some of the images that I have been taking with my own equipment and also from the big telescopes. And the funny part about this it is that uh, it is free and Everyone from any part of the world can join this event. Just follow the um, detailed instructions in the webpage of Senior Observatory. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, fantastic. That'll be so much fun. Yay, 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 yay. Okay, but moving a bit to the standard sections of our podcast, we have not received too much feedback lately, also because we have been busy and we've not been doing that much. But at least I would like to thank three people who have shared some of the content that we have produced. And not only that, but also they have recommended us to be very fun and entertaining and informative about astronomy. One is Alejandro Revuelto at Aref Vuelto, then Chris Jim at this Chris Jim, and another, I don't have the name, it is a student at Tel Aviv at Fun Fact Science. Oh, Fun Fact Science, that's Covey. Fun Fact Science is lots, is a great account and, you know, that Covey's the person who runs it and he's fantastic. I actually joined him for a conference in late January for the Ramon SciCom conference or oh. Ramon SciCom Con, and it was lots of fun. That is good. I didn't know about that. I was trying to get a bit of extra information. Uh, all of them, the three of them are in Twitter, but I couldn't find anything else. But thank you very much for recommending us. And I also have another tweet from our friend Cafuego or Scooter, who said, I know the scientists love a good moon story. Had you ever seen a moon tree? And he provides a link to an article, I think it was in Forbes, talking about the moon trees. A moon tree? I don't think I've heard of a moon tree before. You know that someone played golf in the moon? Yes. That was, do you remember that that was, I think, Apollo 14? I think so. In the same mission, they took some seeds from the Earth belonging to some few trees. And they were just, the seeds were going to the moon and they stayed there. I think that they didn't went to the surface of the moon, stayed always in the command module around the moon, but they were there. And then when mm -hmm. the, they came back, some few hundreds of them were useful or were able to germinate and they were given to different institutions around uh, the US. And well, they were planting the moon trees from in different towns and cities. Many of them were related to students and schools, which it is always a good thing. So, well, they, they were talking a bit more about that. We are sharing that news just for your curiosity. I remember that now. It's so cool. Actual trees that were birthed from seeds that went to the moon and came back. And it's so cool. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know about that. Perhaps I read it in the past, uh, but I didn't know about that. So thank you very much, Afuego, for sharing this very interesting thing. Okay, well, let's move to Space News. Yes. Okay, more for me talking, because again, uh, the first Space News, it is something that I would like at least sharing, because uh, last week our latest uh, paper compiling uh, more than 3,000 galaxies of the SAMI Galaxy Survey have been uh, accepted and uh, we prepare a very good media release. And during the last week, it have been all around the places here in, in Australia and even also internationally. Um, the paper is led by Scott Groom, who is a professor at Sydney University, with uh, Matt Owers, who is a good friend of mine here at Macquarie University at the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and some few, 30 few more astronomers, me included, because <laughs> we did uh, plenty of observations using the Anglo-Australian Telescope with this very sophisticated instrument, which is uh, SAMI, that is able to observe 13 objects at the same time using internal field units which was quite powerful starting in, in 2012, 2013. And we were able to compile 3000 galaxies in a lot of detail. And that is helping us to understand a bit better star formation processes in galaxies, resolving the galaxies in, uh, in the relatively near universe and how that connect with uh, the uh, galaxy evolution and how galaxies are actually assembled and put together. And there are still plenty of science that have to be released uh, from there. Uh, by the way, that uh, is completely unrelated to that, but I'm going to say that because I forgot to say that before. Uh, during Christmas, the other, the other little thing that I did was providing comments to your draft paper in the gamma. Indeed, which I am <laughs> yet to implement because I've got way too many things happening right now. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. But Sami uses gamma. So Gamma mm. was the very large uh, 300,000 galaxies observed with 2DF. Some of them, only a few of them, 3,000 have been observed with uh, SAMI. But more will be very soon observed, hopefully starting this year, with Hector, because Hector oh. is a successor of uh, SAMI. And not only 13, but uh, 15 more, total of 28. 27, because at least one of them is going to be used, as, as we did for SAMI, for a 7 star. So we usually have only 27 galaxies in the same field. And for those who may not know, SAMI is a spectrograph? Yes, it is. A, Do I have that right? It is, well, it is, it is, here it is a moment in which everything is a bit confusing. Because one thing is the instrument that uh, gets the light and it's able to map for example, 2DF, it is a robot that has 400 optical fibers. And SAMI, specifically talking, it is an instrument that has many more fibers, but all packed together in 13 bundles, plus 27 sky individual skies. So they're working as an integrated field unit. The Finity mm-hmm. SAMI has some few of them. But if we are talking correctly, the spectrograph will be A omega, which is the same ah. one, the same one that uh, we have used for, uh, for 2DF, for, for gamma, or yeah. the same one that, uh, for example, I'm using for my observations with the Koala instrument, which is another 
integral field unit that is fixed in the Cassegrain focus of the telescope. Hector is different because Hector will have both new technology for putting the fibers, the bundle, and some few of those fibers will be fed not into A omega, but into a new spectrograph. Mm -hmm. so that's why I said it is a bit, you know, confusing. But <laughs> yes and no, bit of both. <laughs> uh, it is, you know, the like the Schrödinger cat. <laughs> 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 I was happy to have uh, contributed to that, not only with the observations, plenty of discussion for in the papers and uh, a bit of the data reduction, but also with something extra, which is providing images and photographs and time lapses videos that have mm. been shared uh, um, everywhere and and that is uh, that is good that is very good ah oh, fantastic if you want to know a bit more about the sami galaxy survey and my own experience with uh, this survey i wrote a very nice article about it in spaceaustralia.com so please go and have a look to it so my space news uh, is also a little bit of self-publicity here, is that I've gotten a new position, just to oh. add on to all the more things that I do. But this is really fun, and I'm really excited about this new position. I am now going to be part of the Space Australia team as their resident TikToker. Wow, TikToker. I think yes. I have never had... I, I, of course, I now know, I know what that means, but I have never heard that term before. Hmm. Neither had I. We kind of just ran with it when we were coming <laughs> up with this position. So my role at Space Australia is to create these fun short videos that kind of like act as a too long don't read or a TLDR of our long form articles on the website. So I make these fun TikTok videos. They relate to what we're going to be talking about on the website with our articles. And it's also fun. It's doing what I've been doing previously for my own account, but now for a much bigger cause. And I guess I'm now a professional TikToker because I'm getting paid to make TikToks, which is <laughs> insane. Yeah, for sure. Definitely because your videos in TikTok, I have already said this a couple of times in this podcast, they're absolutely awesome. You have been doing that for a year. I remember it was mm. actually a year ago, exactly a year ago. It was before the pandemic you came home recording ah i have to show you this new thing the tiktok i'm very excited blah 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 blah. and i said another another thing from these jumps just dumb people <laughs> that they can yeah but I, I i agree i agree that the format it's 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 very good so it's just in a minute very short video providing information mm -hmm. usually as far as i understood i thought that the TikTok was more for doing this kind of fun or videos, people dancing or singing or doing a bit of karaoke. But uh, I think that there is also an increasing number of uh, people like you that are actually providing interesting content and good content. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. The, the, the dynamic of TikTok has changed so much over this past year, not just from lip syncing and dance videos. There's still lots of that on the app, but now there's lots of other scientists like myself with astronomy. Uh, there are doctors on and PhD researchers who are researching the COVID vaccine that are talking about that in their research and like putting out the fires of misinformation that is on the internet, which is great. So 
it's this whole change has been fantastic to see and I'm so excited to be part of it and now part of Space Australia as well which exciting news for Space Australia is now verified on Twitter so we are a reliable source I saw that the other day and I think it is great. Really, I have to chase you, Rami. Let's see, how can I get my Twitter account verified? <laughs> I don't know how many times I remember sending my, uh, even the copy of my password. The, the copy mm. of my password and they didn't verify me. Anyway, who cares about all those things? Good, 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 good. That is, that is awesome. Uh, well done. I have an extra space news because uh, we, we should also say something that is not only coming from us because, okay, we are recording this every <laughs> couple of months now. <laughs> and now it is a self-publicity of auto-publicity. No, 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 no. I have a very interesting news about the um, discovery of the most distant quasar. Ooh. Um, the name of this object, it is J0313-1806. It is at a redshift of 7.642. How catchy. Yeah, the, they didn't put any funny name to this one. The distance to this object, it is around 9.037 gigaparsecs, which is equivalent to 29.4 billion light years. Oh, so I'm guessing that that distance is the co-moving distance and not the light distance, given that it's farther than 13.8 billion light years away. Yeah, really, believe me that we have not prepared this. I love that you asked that question, because that <laughs> is exactly true. Actually, did say the 29.4 billion light years, just for emphasizing that. It is a co-moving distance, and we can see many more things that the 13.7 billion years because of the accelerated expansion of the universe. Indeed. So, so the, the time it takes for the light from this quasar to get to us traveling for 13.7 billion years, whatever it is, has space between where we are and where it was has expanded over that time when it's trying to travel to us. And so now taking into account the expansion of the universe, it's 29.037 billion light years away. Mm -hmm. And actually, we can very easily determine the redshift using observations. At the end of the day, it is an emission line or a absorption line, a feature. You know where it is and you know where mm -hmm. you are observing it and you know where it is on in rest position. And then you just subtract, divide it, and you get the redshift. Easy. But... For getting the distance, we need the models. We need um, a model combining uh, the Hubble flow, the dark matter, the dark energy, some few more extra mm. things if you want to get into that. And there are even some few online calculators that help you doing that because they're very complex. Indeed, because we can't just use the Hubble law, because that which is just V over D, because that's uh, that's really only useful within redshift of one, isn't it? Yes, but it is the Hubble Lemaitre. Ah, Remember that they changed that they changed the name of the law. The Hubble constant, it is still the Hubble constant, but the law is now the Hubble limit law. Yeah, we cannot. We can only do that in the very nearby universe. And in the very nearby universe, we have another problem because the velocities, the radial velocities, sometimes are more or less of the same order of magnitude of the expansion of the universe in the very, very, very close galaxy. So we cannot apply the limit law in very very nearby galaxies mm. anyway using also this we can estimate that 
the age of the universe, when uh, this uh, the light of the quasar we observed was emitted, was 619 million years only. Oh, that's young. That's very, very, very young. Very, very, very young. Just for giving a general idea of the evolution of the universe after the recombination, which is around 380,000 years after the Big Bang, it is the moment that we see the cosmic background radiation. It is the moment mm -hmm. that the, the light and the matter are separated and the um, universe is starting to cool down to, to form the, the atoms, um, the atoms with the electrons. And after that, the, there is a glow of the big band and the glow of the universe is just going into uh, cooling, cooling down, cooling down. And we have the period of the dark ages. Mm -hmm. And for many, many million years, the universe was completely dark because there were still no stars and the proto-galaxies there. And in some moment, depending on the model of the prediction, some moment, some people are saying around the 500 million years after the Big Bang, we have the first stars that are born. And it is a reionization of the universe. And it is when we mm. finally start to see things and that the first light the first light the cosmic dawn i think it is also called mm, very poetic and it is when we are started to see some of these objects this is very very far away however it is interesting to note that this object it is only 60 million light years farther than the previous known most distant quasar Ooh. which is j1342 plus 0928 wait for it this has a name, Pisco. Oh, okay. <laughs> very cool. At a red is 7.54. Anyway, having these two very bright quasars, imagine that we are observing this distance, a very, very, very far distance. It's starting to be a bit of uh, making plenty of people very nervous. Mm. Because for observing this, we are observing a quasar. A quasar, it is a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy that is uh, eating a lot. Plenty of material, it is falling into this supermassive black hole and the host galaxy is not very bright. It is not very massive. So the light of the quasar, it is completely masking the light of the galaxy. That was wow. actually that was actually one of the main discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope at the very beginning in the early 90s when the telescope was first used to be able to detect the host galaxies of quasars because we were thinking that that was the case but we needed the observations to prove that. Mm. So the mass of this uh, supermassive black hole it is around 1.6 billion times the mass of the sun that is around twice as massive of the supermassive black hole in the Pisco quasar. And that means that the original black hole should have had around 10,000 solar masses that is very difficult to reconciliate with the theories of formation of the universe and formation of the black holes. Mm. So that is why this observation is quite important because it is just challenging the models. Right? It is constraining also the models. And it is even opening the possibility of, can we really explain this with stellar evolution and the formation of galaxies? Or should we need to resort to 
primeval black holes. Right. Black holes that were formed during the Big Bang. Still, probably not. But still, there is <laughs> there's plenty, plenty of uh, interesting information about that. And yeah, there's a few more data about this very interesting quasar because uh, it is quite hot. It's emitting a hot wind at around 20% of the speed of light. Pretty speedy. Yeah, that is also impacting in the what we call the feedback of the universe. They were able to estimate that it's consuming, heating around 25 solar masses per year. Oh. Which is <laughs> a lot. So it's a very hungry black hole. Very hungry. And also some information about the host galaxy, because these very primitive galaxies, as we said, if the moment that the first stars were born, plenty of gas, neutral gas, basically hydrogen, plenty of star formation. They estimated that what we call the star formation rate, it is around 200 solar masses per year. That means that in that galaxy, in that moment, a star like the sun was born every 1.8 days. What? So it is that's, just that's fast. A very, a very crazy star making machine, this young galaxy. I think so. When we when we see galaxies that are forming stars a lot faster than galaxies like our galaxy, the Milky Way, we call them starburst galaxies. I feel like starburst just doesn't quite capture the craziness of this particular primordial galaxy. Oh my goodness. Well, I have seen some few of these extraluminous infrared galaxies that are starbursts, that are two galaxies merging, that have a star formation rate of this order, a bit of the hundreds, the order of the hundreds. Wow. And definitely I have also observed some few galaxies that have of the order of tens of solar masses per year but the star formation rate of our own milky way galaxy which has how many 300 300 million billion stars 400 billion stars it is between one and two solar masses per year that is means every year between one and two stars are born so yeah that is definitely crazy I don't want to forget that the first uh, author of this study is Feiji Wong from the University of Arizona, and also say that they use near-infrared spectroscopy for these kind of observations using the Keck, the Gemini, and the Magellan, although the redshift comes from observations using ALMA, and that is why it is so precise, the 7.642 because it has a very good detection of a C2 forbidden line using the ALMA um, radio interferometer in Chile. Excellent. Well, from all of this, yeah, I guess you could say this is a pretty exotic object. Indeed, it is. Well, all quasars are, and it is definitely, when you are talking about quasars, people are starting to melt their brains. So what are they talking about? This quasar, what is a quasar? Is that a pulsar? Or what is connected with a white dwarf? Or what other kind of exotic objects are there? Exactly. So here we are for answering all your questions for you. Because today we are going to be talking about... All of these exotic objects from white dwarfs to neutron stars, pulsars, magnetars, black holes... And, well, we've covered quasars a little bit now already, so let's put to bed all those misconceptions and misunderstandings once for all, and uh, let's talk about these exotic stellar objects. 
I think we should start with white dwarf mm-hmm. stars. They seem to be a good foundation to start with when it comes to exotic objects in the universe. I completely agree. I think it is the best way of starting. We have already commented the, the quasars. There are many more things to say about the quasars, including the amazing adventure of how they were discovered. By the way, Topia using the radio telescope in parks and how the name was given and some few other things. But we want to emphasize much more here today this stellar objects, these exotic stellar mm. objects, starting with the white dwarf. Indeed. The main foundation for all of this today that I think is important to remember and to mention is that all of these objects we're going to talk about today, white dwarf, neutron stars, uh, black holes, in terms of stellar mass black holes, are all formed from stars with different masses. So we're going to start with the lowest mass stars, Stars like our sun, a bit lower mass than that, a little bit higher than that as well. But stars like our sun, once they've eventually exhausted through all of their hydrogen and have evolved through the red giant branch and up to being a red giant, eventually the core turns into a white dwarf. Yep. I always like to say, particularly when talking about stellar evolution, that uh, these low mass stars including the sun, because the, the limit it is around even to eight solar masses, that when you get a white dwarf at the end of the evolution, it is just that they don't have enough mass for preventing the external layers of the atmosphere to go away, particularly mm-hmm. also coming with the the radiation pressure and the stellar wind that the center of the star, the core of the star is emitting. In that way, we can easily understand how a planetary nebula is formed in the sense that you have the what was the core of the nebula that it will become a, a dwarf star, a white dwarf star, and surrounded by all the external layers of the star that are pushed away. That is just a tiny fraction of time of actually the, the life of a star because that process lasts only for some few tens to not even hundreds thousands of years so it is not that much did i say that right now it's understood ten thousands and a maximum hundred thousand of years mm-hmm. so all the planetary nebula that we are seeing and um, have that age as a limit but in the center, we have the white dwarf that we can actually see them in many other places in the Milky Way. Actually, they are very important for astronomers, uh, not only for understanding galaxy evolution, but particularly for an, an, an extragalactic person like myself. I need white dwarf for calibrating my data. Oh. Because these are very hot stars. They have a very nice black body spectrum peaking in the ultraviolet and with no many absorption features because of the way it is. So they are perfect for getting what we call the absolute flat calibration when we are doing our observations. So usually when I'm doing my spectroscopy, I always observe at least one white dwarf star just to try to get this, uh, this calibration done. Ah, there you go. Typically, white dwarfs have masses between the 0.17 since it is the lowest limit that they can have, 0.17 times the mass of the sun, of course, to the 1.33 solar masses, that is that magic number that we have around there. (laughs) It's going 1.4, which is a very famous Chandrasekhar number, which is a limit for the white dwarf. The average value of the mass, it is around 0.6 times the mass of the sun, the average value for the mass of a white dwarf. Question. 
Um, so our sun will turn into a white dwarf. Our sun is one solar mass, but assuming the outer layers of our sun will expand out and become this planetary nebula, how massive do we think the white dwarf will be when our sun ends its life? I'm sure the calculations have been made in some place and do not have it here, but I will say that probably it will be on the order of 0.5 to 0.6. I will say that. I will say that. Perhaps it is a bit, I really do not know, but it will be a good fraction of the mass of the sun is going to be lost as part of planetary nebula, which is good because uh, that also means that all the chemical elements that have been synthesized and created and cooked inside the sun will be released (laughs) into the interstellar medium, you know, and starting uh, new solar systems in the future. Who knows? Mm. These objects are also small. Very small. Between 0.8 and 0.2% radius of the sun. That is more or less the size of the Earth. Mm. They're they're very, very small. So they are small, but even though they are small, we can observe them very well because they are still relatively bright and very hot because they're very hot and we can use them for these calibration purposes, as, as I said. And the other thing it is, of course, that they are very dense, very dense in comparison oh, to what we are very. used to. The density in a white dwarf star, it is around you know, one ton per cubic meter, 10 to the nine kilograms per cubic meter, Whew. which is a lot. Um, <laughs> that's an understatement but yeah <laughs> but it is a lot but still it is Not the, the lowest in, in the lowest mm. end of what we are going to be talking today <laughs> indeed and there are a couple of white dwarf stars close to the earth as well the closest one being Sirius B and you may recognize Sirius the name of the star we've got Sirius the brightest star in the night sky Sirius B is the companion to Sirius mm-hmm. so it can be seen from using telescopes, and it was very hard to find. It actually was only predicted, I'm pretty sure I had the story right, is it was predicted first before it was actually observed. Because when looking at Sirius A, the bright one that we can see, we can see that it wobbled a bit. And we're like, why does it wobble? It can't wobble unless there's something else there. Definitely, you are completely right. That was the way it was discovered. Later, they have been seen many times. And now even, even I have seen recently images taken uh, using what we call the uh, lacking imaging by amateur astronomers that is there, is there. (laughs) uh, I mean, it is not clear, but yeah. It's definitely there. there. Some people have tried them have been a thing during the last few months, I will say. I have seen some few people talking about that, definitely. Sirius B also has the name of the puppy, El Cachorro. Oh, that's so cute. Because it's it's a little puppy to the dog star. Probably that is the reason why it got the name. I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But a few more interesting facts about Sirius B. So it's about eight and a half light years away. It has an effective temperature of 25,000 Kelvin. That's quite, that's a lot hotter than I expected, actually. And also around about the same mass as the sun with an apparent magnitude of 8.44. So very faint because that's, they do have very low luminosities, but very hot. Yeah, very hot. That is the other important thing about the white dwarf stars. If you remember when we were talking about stars and the classification of stars, and we were talking about the very bright stars, all stars, they start to have more or less that temperature. 
they can be around 25, 30, 35, 40, 45,000 even sometimes. So it is in that regime. And actually, when we plot the stars in the famous uh, HR diagram, or Hepsum Brussels diagram, the white dwarf stars are exactly more or less in the same X position which is the temperature, with respect to where we find these very bright massive stars. The only mm -hmm. difference it is the luminosity, the intrinsic luminosity of a very massive star. It is six orders of magnitude, at least, probably more, larger mm. than what we, the luminosity that uh, white dwarf stars have. Indeed. And it makes sense because white dwarfs are much, much, much smaller than these really massive stars. Yeah, well, imagine the difference between a planet-like star mm -hmm. and a planet-sized star to a star that, uh, if you put it where the sun is, Jupiter will be inside yeah. a star. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, they are huge. Yeah. They are very, very, very massive and huge. One thing I do want to mention about white dwarf stars before we move on to neutron stars, because I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a good connection between the two, is how do white dwarf stars stay inflated and that's through electron degeneracy pressure I'm not going to go into too much detail about that i think we talked about it on a previous episode more so in detail but that i think that's an important to say because with neutron stars they stay afloat and inflated with neutron degeneracy pressure hence yeah. neutron stars yeah, actually what you said, it is uh, very important for understanding the physics of the white dwarf or also now moving into the neutron stars. Uh, but definitely, we, perhaps we, I have been much more focused describing the observational parameters of the white dwarf stars. And that point, thank you for making it. It is critical for understanding of the electron degeneracy. It is what it is keeping the star together. Um, mm. In a star like the sun, in a standard star, what we have it is the pressure of the nuclear reactions happening in the center of the star, that, that is compensated with the gravity that is trying to put everything together. In a white dwarf star, it is the, the degeneracy of the, the electrons, that pressure that is, that, is, that is creating, that is what is holding the star together against contraction because of the gravity. And now in neutron stars, we have the neutron degeneracy. Indeed. So like we said at the start before we talked about white dwarf stars, the mass of the star before it dies dictates what's going to happen at the end and what it's going to turn into. So when we get to stars that are about three or more times the mass of the sun up to about eight times the mass of the sun, when it dies, when it reaches the end of its stellar evolution, it will turn into a neutron star after a supernova, I think. How neutron stars are created usually after a supernova explosion because we need something that is uh, a, a star that is massive enough for creating this uh, this kind of objects if we are talking about a star exploding as a supernova the lowest limit it is around eight solar masses so the progenitor of neutron stars should be starting from the eight solar masses till the, depending on who he's talking, 20, 25 solar masses in the moment that the original star went after exploding a supernova, what you're going to get it is uh, the remnant, a black hole. But we mm -hmm. will go there. However, 
that is very nice in theory and we like to put everything in boxes but there mm. is a continuum and we actually still do not know exactly what is happening in these, what we call the intermediate masses of a standard star between, you say that three, eight, is when, uh, what is happening? It's going to be a planetary nebula, it's going, the center is going to be a white dwarf. That is what usually it is said. Perhaps in the high limit of that, the remnant is massive enough for creating a neutron star. Mm. So we are in, in the moment of merging things there in, in that in, in that regime. So it is not that for when we are understanding it is not that easy to really say from where that is coming. In the old times we have always said okay that is a supernova explosion when a star it is at least eight times the mass of the sun and then you will have a neutron star. But mm -hmm. perhaps even intermediate star can create a neutron star. Indeed. Now, a few fun facts about neutron stars. They are even smaller than white dwarf stars, being about 15 to 30 kilometers wide or 10 to 20 miles wide. And they can have about three times the mass of the sun, which makes them the densest objects in the universe second to black holes, of course. Strictly talking, a uh, black hole has infinite density in some way. This is true. <laughs> so, this is so, true. So neutron I mean, stars are actually in the, in the highest <laughs> density. Right yeah, now. trying to get to infinite density is just a bit of a high bar for neutron stars to get to. But since they are so dense, uh, a, a little factoid for you, a teaspoon of neutron star material would weigh equivalent to 4 billion tons on Earth. Wow, a so teaspoon. That teaspoon. Okay, that is 4 billion times what we said uh, was for the white dwarf. Uh -huh. uh, so the, the density of the neutron stars, it is basically equivalent to the density of the atomic nucleus. It is just absolutely crazy. The number it is at is around 5, 10 to the 17 kilograms per cubic oh. meter. <laughs> that, is, that, that, that's a lot. <laughs> that, is, that is a lot. If we could put all the, of the Earth in the size of the Arecibo radio telescope, the 300 meters, that size, we will have a neutron star. Wow. Um, but the masses of the neutron stars are also more or less fixed. Because we have the low limit, which is the famous Chandrasekhar limit, 1.4 times the mass of the sun. But then the, we have also a high limit, which is around 2.1 times the mass of the sun. That has actually a name. It is the tolman oppenheimer volkov limit, because it is by theory estimated, also part of the stellar evolution. And it is funny because it was 1.1, but uh, we already know a neutron star that seems to have around 2.2. <laughs> Still, some few things that we have to um, clarify and to study a bit further. But the fun thing about neutron stars is that they come in a few different, what I would like to call flavors. So we can do three, technically three. The third one's kind of a mixture of the first two, but three different flavors of neutron stars, one being a pulsar so most of 
the no neutron stars that we are are indeed aware of are actually pulsars. So these are those rapidly rotating neutron stars that have these beams of radiation that come out from either end of the pulsar of the neutron star and we can hear them and observe them ticking. Yeah, that is a very important point because something that is fundamental for, from neutron stars, it is that they have a very strong magnetic field. 10 to the 4, 10 to the 11, sometimes Teslas, which is uh, a lot. That is far than of magnitude of we have in the, here on the Earth. And sometimes, as they are emitting this kind of radiation from the poles of the star, depending the weather orientation with respect to us, we see this pulsation. And that is where the name of pulsar is coming. So just to make this clear, all pulsars are neutron stars. Not all neutron stars are pulsars. Indeed. The special flavor of neutron star. What are the other two? The other two? So the next one is a magnetar, which hey. sounds like a transformer, to be honest. It sounds so cool. So a magnetar, you if you might want to, you might guess what a magnetar is about, given the name. Sounds like magnet. It might have something to do with magnetic fields. It does indeed have something to do with magnetic fields. So a magnetar is a neutron star with a particularly strong magnetic field, about 1,000 times stronger than a normal neutron star, which just you wait to hear about this. A typical magnetar uh, magnetic field can be up to 100 billion times stronger than a fridge magnet. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow, do, indeed. Do, can, you say, can you say the number again? How much do you say? 100 billion with a B. <laughs> 100 billion times stronger than your typical fridge magnet, which is also uh, about 100 million times stronger than the most powerful magnets ever made by humans. So this, these are just completely unfathomably large magnetic fields. Okay, so someone who has a lot of time and wants to make a good joke can put together... Uh, how much do you say? A hundred billion of magnets from the fridge. They put them together. Mm -hmm. And you get a magnetar. <laughs> okay. Well, that is indeed a lot. But these objects are right now almost everywhere, or at least in the, in the, in the media and for scientists and for astronomers. Uh, they're starting to pay a lot of attention to, to magnet stars. Indeed, because in April in 2020, last year, a magnetar about 21,000 light years away emitted the most powerful radio burst ever detected in the Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. And that was also classified as, as this fast ray burst. Ah, wasn't fast it? radio burst. Fast radio burst. So actually they are connected. And we already talked about fast radio bursts in episode number 37, Migrating Planets, last year, when we were discussing these uh, fast blue optical transients of F-bots. Ah, yes, those? the F-bots. <laughs> and the FRVs, the fast radio burst, a research that was conducted here in Australia, uh, combining observation in optical and radio to try to 
see what is between these very strong explosions that we see then very, very, very distant in the universe, in very distant galaxies. We don't see the host galaxies, but we observe this fast radio burst. Mm -hmm. But now we found one in the Milky Way. And that was critical. It was critical because there were many ideas about what this exotic explosion could be. But now it seems that uh, the hypothesis that it is linked to something happening in a magnet star is taking shape. Now it is really starting to be quite accepted within the, the astronomical community. And just to put this more into context is because this, this radio burst was so powerful that it could have been detected out to 180 million light years away using hmm. big telescopes on Earth. So that's just how huge and bright these yeah. objects are in radio. Yeah, indeed. And that's also the reason why we are observing this and starting to observe this phenomena in the universe. And we are doing that now because we are starting to be able to map the sky more or less routinarily or with very large field of view. And also with a very high temporal resolution because the duration of this burst is just milliseconds, mm. sometimes even shorter than that. And one way of explaining, the only way of explaining that, or is way have to be something that is very compact, very small, that is able to provide this big bang of energy <laughs> in just a very tiny moment. Indeed. So those are magnetars. Okay, so first two flavors, pulsars, magnetars of our neutron stars. The third one, which I did say is a combination of the first two, is a magnetar and pulsar combination. So it's very strong magnetic field and rapidly rotating where we can see it tick. So mm. there you go. And there are, according to this uh, NASA JPL infographic that I'm looking at right now, there are currently six known neutron stars that are both pulsars and magnetars. And that was accurate as of June 2020. Okay, so that's, uh, I don't think we will have many more because they have I been... I can't have imagine there'll be many more now. <laughs> yeah, they have to be very difficult to get, but uh, it is interesting. The same way we were saying before, all pulsars are neutron stars, but not all neutron stars pulsars. Uh, we have something similar kind of here with the magnet star because magnet stars, some of them can be also classified as pulsars, but they are a special class of neutron stars because they have very intense magnetic field. So it's, it's just everything connected together. Exactly. It's like an epic Venn diagram where all of them are still considered neutron stars. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, and moving from there, the next exotic object, I think we should not be talking that much about it because we have talked about that a lot, which is a stellar black hole. Indeed, the stellar black holes. We've seen many of them. We've seen lots of them collide with each other, with LIGO. And uh, they're very, very interesting. We don't know a lot about black holes, but at the same time, we do know a lot about black holes. Well, we know that it's uh, the remnant of the most uh, massive stars after exploding a supernova. If the original mass of the star was at least 25, 20, 25, 30, depending on who is talking about, we'll put a <laughs> limit, times the mass of the sun. The material is so massive that it's just uh, condensing and collapsing over itself, and that is able to create an object that uh, has infinity density, basically. <laughs> so it breaks. It actually breaks uh, the uh, what we call the space-time continuum. And that is also mm -hmm. why they're so, so interesting. But at the end, it is an object that is so, so 
dense that not even the light can escape from it. Indeed. Perhaps, uh, well, I don't want to be starting to think, elucubrate here, but uh, who knows? <laughs> Perhaps in reality there is a way with a bit of new physics of putting a density here. Um, I don't know, I don't want to, to go further than that. But, uh, <laughs> but definitely these are the famous objects that now we are observing or better said, perhaps listening thanks to LIGO, LIGO Virgo collaboration. And because we are observing the merging of this kind mm. of objects. And we hear them chirp. Creating larger black holes, eventually perhaps moving into the intermediate mass black hole to the supermassive black hole, as we were talking before with the quasars. But that reminds me, Angel, I learned recently that supermassive black holes are not the most massive black holes. There's two, right? This blew my mind. So there are two categories above supermassive black holes. Uh, well, these are very completely news for me. Please, mm-hmm. please continue. So supermassive black holes can be up to about 10 billion times the mass of the sun. That's, mm. again, who you talk to depends on where that upper limit is. It's a common theme throughout astronomy where there's not always a consensus of where limits should be. Anyway, moving on. So supermassive black holes can go up to about 10 billion times the mass of the sun. Beyond that, there are ultra-massive black holes that are between 10 billion and 100 billion times the mass of the sun, of which we have observed uh, like a handful or so ultra-massive black holes, and we are aware of a handful of ultra-massive black holes. But now (laughs) there is a category suggested by some researchers and theoretical physicists above ultra-massive black holes where they could potentially exist. Um, wow. You want to know what they're called? You, you're going to hate this and, and hate it in a, in a way that you just can't hate it but love it at the same time. They are called stupendously large black holes. So that is SLVH? No, really it's not. <laughs> it is. that They've been nicknamed slabs. So you've got S slabs. from stupendous. L A from large, uh, uh, B from black hole from black, and then the S at the end from holes. And uh, uh, anyway, we astronomers love to try to create acronyms from whatever. <laughs> Just doesn't even need to be the first letter or first couple of letters. It can be any letter. It can be the last letter of the word. Just like with holes. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so these are black holes that are hypothetically more massive than 100 billion times the mass of the sun, stupendously large black holes, slabs. Okay, for me, anything that is larger than 10 to the 6 uh, times, 10 to the 6 times the mass of the sun, that would be a supermassive black hole and forget yeah. about the rest of the classification. <laughs> that is, it's just, again, it is the way that we try to put a new name of something. And perhaps even you put a name in a step of saying oh, that is the most massive, supermassive black hole that we have detected. No, we have discovered a new category of subject because these are 10 to the 12 times the mass of the sun or whatever. Ten to the too many. <laughs> yeah, it's completely uh, stupid large. <laughs> Good and fair. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Do you want to say anything else about black holes or stellar black holes? Uh, we have already covered all these kind of different uh, exotic stars slash objects. Mm. So I think one last thing that I might like to mention uh, that I also learned about recently about black holes is that black holes can have hair. That's metaphorical. Ah, yeah, no, that is a famous theorem coming from uh, theoretical physicists. I think the boss Stephen Hawking and the other mathematician Penrose, Penrose, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics last year. Yeah. 2020, it was the Nobel Prize in Physics. It was for the discovery of the supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy to the leaders and the PIs of the two teams, plus also to Roger Penrose for the theoretical contributions for the understanding of the black holes. Mm. So for those who don't haven't heard of gravitational hair before or black hole hair, it's this metaphorical term given to the information that is generally lost when a black hole is formed. So when a black hole is formed from the end of a, a star uh, of its lifetime, all information of the star previous to that is lost to the black hole, other than the, the explosion. But the black hole itself, all that information is lost because it's gone beyond the event horizon. We can't see it anymore. That information is gone. But turns out that some of the most exotic, oh, what is the, it was another E word that they used in the in the article. Um, but the, the some of the other most extreme stellar mass black holes, ones that have like the maximum spin, uh, electric charge, and, and mass. So the non-hair stuff is the mass, electric charge, and spin, or angular momentum of black holes. Uh, some of these stuff have, some of these have hair, which changes our understanding of black holes and information. And it's just, oh, I want to rip my own hair out just trying to think about it because it is so intense this is this is hard stuff it is it is very hard stuff and really for understanding this uh, you need plenty of knowledge of theoretical physics and not only quantum mechanics and relativity mm. and the plenty of formalities that are really difficult to get and you need plenty of time and years of working and studying to be able to get into the details of course there are always people who are able to communicate that in a kind of an easy way the outreach that we try to do but these terms sometimes is just you need to explain so many different little things you know, mm. bit into detail for getting what it is all about but yeah you said that right and that is another very interesting path to follow for our understanding of the universe and in particular the black holes um mm. in the same way that you said that i don't want to forget to at least mention here another kind of exotic object that might exist around there which is the quarks stars oh. <laughs> again it is just completely theory but imagine that we can find a star that instead of being made of neutrons, because neutron stars are made of neutrons, <laughs> they're only neutrons Indeed. packed, we could find objects that the, the neutrons is completely broken in some way and they're only having quarks. And the density in this object will be even larger than oh, the one that we find in neutron stars because it will be not the density, it should be not... I'm doing the analogy here. Not the density of the atomic nucleus, like, like what is happening with a neutron stars, but the density of a nucleon. I mm -hmm. mean, of a, a neutron proton, or a proton. Of a neutron. 
probably a neutron, but more or less they have the same density, which I don't know what, how much is it, but it is large. And it's it's got to be dense. <laughs> it's going to be very, very dense. Yeah, so I think with that, it is a good point for wrapping up our journey through these exotic objects. And jump directly before saying bye-bye in WhatsApp. WhatsApp! Um, so for, for WhatsApp, I was checking and there are plenty of things there that we have already said and we have already recommended to observe. And sometimes we are a bit picky saying, okay, we are this fantastic galaxy that we can only observe with a large telescope from the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Today, we have decided that we are going to go for something easy because everyone can enjoy this object because it is a star, one of the brightest stars in the sky, and it is the star Aldebaran. Indeed. Which must not be confused with Alderaan, which is a planet in the Star Wars saga. Well, actually, the planet oh. was destroyed <laughs> in the very first movie in, in The New Hope, in the Star Wars the New Hope. Anyway, sorry, I, I have to say <laughs> Aldebaran, it is uh, Alpha Tauri. It is a very bright star in the constellation of the bull in Taurus, the eye of the bull. Yes. It is actually a giant star, K5. Part of the red giant branch phase. Yes. Run out of all of its hydrogen in its core, turned it all into helium, and it's heating up a shell outside of the core that is then burning hydrogen in this hydrogen shell. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the brightest stars that we can see in the night sky. I think it is between the 10 and Number 15. 14. 14. Mm. I knew that it was around there. So it is an easy object from people in the northern hemisphere and the uh, southern hemisphere. And on top of that, it is in this beautiful star cluster, which uh, that is the Hyadias, that we need actually binoculars for seeing a bit better. Although Aldebaran doesn't belong to the cluster. They are just there by chance. Uh, the Varanity is at around 65 light years from the sun. It has a magnitude between 0.75 and 0.95 because the same way that uh, we were talking and we talked and many people talked a lot last year about what happened with Betelgeuse, with Aldebaran sometimes that is also happening. It has these periodic changes. Um, perhaps even mm. in the very past, it have experienced a very strong decreasing of the light. Yeah, so it should be a good object for you to go and take your telescope, go and take your binoculars, uh, even just your eyes, and just go out and look for the eye of the bull, which also has uh, quite a hefty planet, possibly, around it. Mm. It's likely to be several times the mass of Jupiter, and it's called Adebaran B, with a lowercase b. Much like many other planets are called the name of the star in a lowercase letter. Uh, that is a typical convention, unless the International Astronomical Union organizes contests uh, for getting names for bright of these famous exoplanets. Adebaran has a mass of around 1.2 times the mass of the sun, but a radius that is around 45 times the radius of the sun. And that is also why the luminosity is, is much larger than the sun, around 440 times as luminous as mm. the sun. Uh, but being a giant star, the temperature it is a bit lower than 4,000 Kelvin, 3,900 or something like that. And it has yep. an age of around 6 
6.4 billion years. So it's not much older than the sun because it is much more massive um, than the sun. So that makes sense. Yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit, but not that much. Not that much older than the sun. Actually, the traditional name Aldebaran derives from the Arabic Aldebaran, which means the follower, because it seems to follow the Pleiades. So, so very nice uh, to try to get a photo of the Pleiades, the Hyades, with the contrast of the red color of Aldebaran. It's very nice. Mm. So there we go. That's our what's actually up in the sky. What's up for today's episode, episode 40. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. We hope you enjoy uh, our episode on exotic stars. And if you have a suggestion for another topic, let us know and we'll talk about it for you. So let us know what you think. Send us your feedback. Send us your questions. What do you want to know? And we'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, we don't know when that will be, but it will be um, hopefully sooner than later. Definitely not in two months. Hopefully. <laughs> we will do our best. But thank you very much for being there. And yes, looking forward for your feedback and your comments. Um, talking to you about all the excitement about astronomy, space, science in the sky. Thank you. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. And, and we, we are, are the scientists. scientists. <laughs> We're never going to get that to work on um on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs>